On the new podcast, American Criminal, you'll learn about the fraud, theft, and murder that marks the dark side of the American dream. Like the Menendez murders, was it two greedy kids who killed their parents for money, or is there more? Listen to American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Glass Houses, a Billy Joel podcast. I'm Michael Grosvenor. And I'm Jack Frenino. Join us as we dig deep into Billy Joel's songs and history and what his music has meant to us. For over five decades, Billy Joel's illustrious career has produced a wealth of media, capturing his journey as one of the 20th century's most celebrated songwriters. Enter John Jackson, Billy's full-time archivist, tasked with collecting and organizing artifacts that range from photos and newspaper clippings to studio outtakes and raw video footage. Some items become part of booklets or box sets or get released as new official concert recordings, but many others helped Jackson, who developed a passion for this work as a teenager, to paint a comprehensive, detailed picture of the man and his music. Join us as we explore the Billy Joel Vault with archivist John Jackson. Regular listeners may recall a few episodes back, we had John Jackson on our episode about Great American Music Hall, and he talked mostly about that release in that conversation, and we touched a little on his role as Billy's archivist. So this is more of that conversation where we really get into you know his role within the Billy Joel camp, you know not only what he does sort of day to day, but also his philosophy behind it and the role of archivists in the rock and roll world now sort of at large. It's not something most of us think about that somebody has to have an archivist going through it. So it's not only like a conversation with somebody you don't often hear from, but it's probably a conversation with someone that you didn't know had that role within the organization. And I always was fascinated with this type of work anyway, working with independent bands and even some major labels over the years. The bands I work closely with, I kind of was stepping into that role I know with the Verve Pipe, and there was a band in Florida I worked with for a long time called Big Sky. I was early on in the habit of assembling every piece I could, whether it be a newspaper article, a press clipping, soundboard recordings, bootleg audience recordings. If they did a run of stickers in 1993, I wanted to get a piece of that just so I had a record of some of the swag and merch they were doing 20 <laughs> years ago. And to me, it was always fascinating because it did tell the story of an artist or a band's journey. And getting to sit down with John, it really made me understand what's involved in doing this for somebody like Billy Joel. The amount of time, the amount of care, and the amount of resources that are required to do it well. Needless to say, I know it's in good hands because I can really tell the passion he has for what he's doing. Yeah, he's coming in as a Billy Joel fan and as someone that was bitten by this bug fairly early in his life. It's a fascinating way to build a career. It's kind of the wild, wild west, as 
John mentioned in a way, because there's no real roadmap for how it's done. It's not like standards and practices for certain business professional roles where you do this, do this, A, B, C with Y result. To have it being in a creative field, but also analytical. And there's just so many facets to doing what he's doing. It's continually evolving. So maybe what the job entails today is not what it entails a year from now. So I think you've heard enough from us. Let's let's jump into this conversation. This is a real good uh, sit down with a cup of tea or a glass of whiskey or something and, and just listen to the fireside chat. <laughs> yes, indeed. So uh, here we are with our conversation with John Jackson. You had gotten like the first degree in rock and roll history, was it specifically? The world's first bachelor's degree in rock and roll history from Indiana University, home of John Cougar Mellencamp. Being an archivist or something in this um, sort of arena, something that was in your sights even back then, or was this something that you discovered over time? Oh, no way. As soon as I got my first CD box set, uh-huh. which was when I was working at a Sam Goody record store in 1989. As soon as I got that and I was like, wow, it's like everything you could want in one thing. And like, yeah, there's a book and there's pictures and there's a story. And it's like, I totally get it. I've, I've only I've heard about Eric Clapton, but it's like, this is this is where I start, you know, because by the time the you know late 80s rolled around, if the CD format hadn't come along and sort of reignited a lot of those careers, people mm-hmm. would have forgotten about a lot of those artists, you know, mm-hmm. maybe not the Claptons and the Stones, but it's like, you know, you think about 1989, the Stones did get back together. The Allman Brothers got back together. The Who got back together. You know, it was sort of this year of, you know, there is a business for these 60s and early 70s bands to move into the future. Here's the path for it. And, you know, yeah. box sets for 20 years were like, you know, they would sell millions and millions of copies. The biggest selling box set of all time. Do you know what it is? You had to guess. Is it the Zeppelin one? The the one that looks like a, that was the, the big one with all the albums in it? No. Good guess. It's not the Springsteen yeah. Live. It's the original. It's the four CD thematic Jimmy Buffett box really? set. Gotta no keep kidding. it hopping yeah. up, man. I saw, I remember seeing that in, there was a big, I don't know, Christmas thing one year. And it was like, these are the biggest box sets yeah. out of all time. That's wild. I remember everybody having that yeah. when that was out. Yeah. It was like one of those things. Because again, you didn't have to buy, if if an artist had had 25 records and, you know, one hit each on all of those records, it's like, well, here's a, so a, a new thing called a CD that sounds really good and has everything <laughs> on it that yeah. you possibly want. Shot. Like, oh, cool. For $18.99? <laughs> yeah. yeah, sure. Being in that you know, sort of the retail part of the business and seeing, you know, every week it would be like, oh, here's a new Hendrix box set. And it was just like, wow, I got to get, this is what I want to do. I want to, who's doing this? And I would actually like look in the book and see like, who put this together? Like whose job is it to do this? And then when I was in college, I started just blindly bugging all of those people and like writing them like letters. Mm. And this is the early nineties, so no email, but, you know, writing people like hard letters of like, Hey, I like what you do. Wouldn't you like to meet me? And of course, never heard <laughs> right. back from any of them ever. Yeah. 
it sort of caught me at a moment where I said, well, that, yeah, this is what I'm really interested in. This, the story, yeah. the history, and not even so much the music, which is also great, but it's like, who was right. this person? Like, where did they come from? What did they do? How did they get there? Why was their career only three years instead of this other group who's been 30 years or whatever? And it's, you know, all of that behind the scenes stuff was always so fascinating to me that, you know, the idea that uh, it could be your job to like be involved in that stuff. I was like, I got to do that. So when when I was in college, they, they actually conveniently had a couple of uh, courses mm-hmm. in rock history because mm-hmm. um, I was in the music school as a, a violin player destined to not be a professional violin player, but, uh, the, and they had these rock history courses where kids from not the music school would take the course and put their credit money into the okay. music school. And it would be, you know, 400 kids in a lecture hall that were like guys from the football team or like dudes from the, you know, business school or whatever. And, you know, so the music department was like, yeah, sure. Free tuition money. Absolutely. <laughs> like keep doing rock yeah. history stuff. So I was like bugging these teachers, like, Hey, can I, help grade tests? Can I do, can I do anything? Uh, and then I figured out there was this other program where you could design your own degree, uh, at the school. If you put together the curriculum and, and got a faculty sponsor and did a whole thing. So I ended up doing that and graduated with the, the world's first bachelor's degree in rock and roll history with a concentration on Elvis, which, you know, my folks were thrilled. I can tell you, (laughs) um, five, four and a half years of tuition money towards a degree in Elvis that was like, but mm. I go, well, you see, I'll, I'll make this work for me. Um, and then, uh, and then ended up doing it. So, yeah. So, so to me, the idea of being an archivist of going through someone's yeah. stuff, sort of piecing together more of a complete story of who that yeah. person is, you know, and how they did the things that they did is, I, I just think is, is like a dream sure. job. So, you know, to be able to do it from a corporate perspective for a long time, and then now to be able to do it sort of from the artist's perspective is endlessly fascinating. What's that difference like when you're going from doing it for Sony to doing it for Billy directly? The stuff that Sony would have in their archive is stuff that they would have paid for. So things like album sessions, live concerts that they would have sent a truck and, you know, mm-hmm. professionally did it, that sort of thing. Um, you know, posed sessions for album cover shoots, that sort of thing. Um, and all of that is great to make a package, you know, a record mm-hmm. package out of. But it's not really personal behind the scenes mm-hmm. stuff. And not that artists have that, you know, it's not like someone's diary is sitting there. But we do have the writing notebooks, you know, all of Billy's writing notebooks mm-hmm. for every record. Yeah. You know, we've got uh, footage of different shows, different rehearsals, different behind the scenes stuff that, you know, no one's ever seen before and Mm, probably won't ever. But you can see how certain things happen really quickly and and sort of easily. And then some things were very, you know, sort of laborious as they came together. And, you know, just some stuff was just captured more, you know, in the in the 70s. Film was really expensive. Getting somebody to shoot you for more than five or 10 minutes was that was like a huge oh, production. Sure. The first time that they did a um, a pay per view, you know, Billy Joel right. Tonight mm-hmm. was heavily edited. Maybe some extra yeah. stuff there. Mm-hmm. You know, there's there's just always stuff where you're like, oh, I know that, but like, what else is there? Or hey, I heard that they did this concert that you know got scrapped and you know no one ever used it, and why right. wasn't that? It's all stuff like that. Or the artist will have stuff like people 
would have taped interviews off of television, you know, like right. the station WQXQ in St. Louis or whatever was like, you were on our show. Here's a giant three quarter inch tape yeah. of your segment. Thank you. Artist X was the label wouldn't have that when you take both things and mm-hmm. kind of put them together as well as, you know, the outside right. stuff, like from you guys, things that, you know, collectors might have in their universes, you know, things like magazine articles that artists might not have cared to read or save or mm-hmm. cut out or whatever, or just, you know, things like backstage passes or merch or, you know, in Billy's case, like root beer rag, um, you th- yeah. just stuff that would have been created yeah. and made that, you know, maybe somebody thought to keep one of, and usually right. they didn't. Those three buckets of like the label, the artist and yeah. the fans is really what you have to put together to go, well, this is more the complete yeah. story. As you're saying this, I'm wondering if digital hasn't made this different for artists going forward where you don't even have to try to track down a piece of tape. If a, you know, if, if a local news station ran a piece, they could probably just send you over the, uh, the media file and it just gets archived or is it still the Wild West? No, you'd be surprised. I mean, I would, I would venture to say north of 90 some percent of all of recorded history of television still hasn't been digitized yeah. yet big things, you know, Saturday Night Live or Letterman or stuff like that, that, that they've done concerted um, digitizing on, but to do it right Mm -hmm. is expensive. And so, you know, these independent stations, these um, even like BBC or big broadcasters, you know, NBC, Mm -hmm. ABC. One of the things that I'm fascinated with tracking down is the 1980, 2020 piece, Glass Houses piece. Where you see him kind of pretending in the studio to be recording. <laughs> He's pretending to kind of yes. finish uh, Don't Ask Me Why <laughs> with Phil. And, you know, it's a, I don't know, a yeah. nine minute mm-hmm. piece, let's say. But they probably shot him for right. a day, yeah. maybe two days. Yeah. Good interview. There's him walking around in front of the glass house. Mm-hmm. house. You know, so to me, I go, well, okay, you're ABC television. Yeah you probably paid a lot of money to keep 2020 Mm -hmm. on the air. Like, where's the rest of that stuff? You probably didn't throw it out. So, you know, it's like, well, okay, now who do I talk to at ABC? What's the, what, what's, what are the steps necessary to get to that box of stuff that they have? That's just sitting there somewhere. You kind of know that Mm -hmm. that's the case, but you know, you can't just call them and say, Hey, send me the digitized outtakes (laughs) to the the 1980, 2020 piece. And, and it is, you know, when, when we did, I was sort of on the outside of working on a, um, a piece that Legacy did on Michael Jackson's Off the oh, Wall yeah. record, where it was just the exact same thing. 2020 had done a piece in 1980, and they had turned up a whole bunch of outtakes and interviews and stuff that were useful to Spike Lee for doing a documentary that he did on Off the Wall. Um, so, you know, I go, I know these exist. We've right. gotten them before. Just get the box. Go get yeah. the box, you know. What I mean, ABC archive person. But it but it is, you know, a lot of that stuff is like it it's literally like the end of, you know, Raiders of the <laughs> yeah. Lost Ark where there's just boxes of shit and you're like, "Can you can you look in that? I think it's based on this spreadsheet that you've given me. I think right. it's this. Can we look at yeah. this, please?" Yeah. you know? And a lot of times, uh, especially with video-based products mm-hmm. or projects, you know, EPKs yeah interviews that sort of thing because all the tapes are various sizes and you know you would tape in the camera like this and then run it off to this and make it a this 
they would just throw it in a box and go, okay, you know, I have the storm yeah. EPK elements, right. <laughs> you know, we got our piece done. Thank you very much. 30 years later, you're like, or 32 years later, you're like, well, wait a second. Where's the whole interview right. for, you know, the Down Easter Alexa right. music video? Cause I can see on a spreadsheet that it exists and it's 45 minutes, but like, where, where right. is it? Can we get it? Oh, it's not digitized. We'd have to pull that. We'd have to, you know, so every single thing you have to go through and, and, <laughs> Um, and actually get it sort of unearthed in that same way. But, you Mm -hmm. know, on the other side of it, the digital landscape has made it a lot easier for artists to use this stuff and to sort of use it to their advantage. And, you know, some artists like Metallica or Elton or, Mm -hmm. you know, people like that are sort of regularly manicuring and curating their YouTube channels of, here's a cool clip you haven't seen, and here's a cool clip you haven't Mm -hmm. seen, and here's one, and here's a, you know... So I think that there's a lot more opportunity mm-hmm. for it, but at the same time, it's, it's a, it can be a laborious thing to actually yeah. get it, you know, and make it, you know, up it so that it looks good against other HD or 4k stuff that right. people are putting up and very good and very <laughs> bad at the same time. You know, it's funny you mentioned EPKs. I, you know, I'm always searching eBay and random just for odds and ends that I've never seen floating around before. And I'll, if the price is right, I'll pick them up. I found this and I bought it very generic unedited audio track billy joel video byways 1986 what this is is the Mm -hmm. unedited audio from the bridge epk yeah the interview interview? portions it's on the unedited version oh nice we'll trade you two songs in the attic at takes if you want it it yeah (laughs) yeah No, but you know, stuff like yeah. that got made for a very particular yep. purpose. He knew that he was making a thing to sell his new record. He knew what he had to talk about, da 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 da. And they they edited it down to however long that is. So I bet it's the the eventual video byways right. is probably mm-hmm. five or six minutes, including snippets of yeah. songs and stuff. So yeah, where you, you go, where's the rest? You know, it's yeah. there. Come on. Yeah. And this is as a fan, you know, of, of any artist, you go, come on, this guy, right. where's the rest of it? Yeah. Come on. Yeah. Real quick, although we can pretty much figure it out from context, what exactly is a byway? Because we were having this conversation when Michael first got that tape. Do you know what like, the exact terminology means? That may have just been a Sony yeah. or Columbia thing, but I, it was probably an industry thing. But it was, a, it was basically okay. a sales <laughs> sheet. Uh, it was a physically printed page that would have the album cover... Uh, you know, the new album from Billy Joel. It's uh, We're sending this track to radio and... You know, sort of like industry insider mm-hmm. stuff. Like we're he's going to be on the Oprah show. He's going to be on the front page of the New York Times. Like, sort of what's happening okay. with this yeah. project. And then, you know, the barcode would be mm-hmm. on that That's page. Right. And so the the retailer would event would get this packet of byways of stuff that was like, oh, it's this is all the stuff that's coming out in you know the first two weeks mm-hmm. of August, and it would be in whatever February mm-hmm. March of that year. They would go through and read it. And it was like to hype them up of like, you need to buy 50 copies oh, of right. the new, you know, Celine Dion record because she's going to have this video premiere. And it's, you know, it's basically like a press kit, yeah. but in a um, standardized okay. format. And then they started making what they called video byways, but they were basically an EPK or a, uh, which is stands for electronic press kit. But yeah, just a hype piece to, um, Right. To sell mm-hmm. the record, which is why a lot of people think that EPKs are somehow like lesser than sort of real interview, like a 
like an interview done by a journalist, yeah. let's say, or a, you know, hard hitting Dateline NBC mm-hmm. or something like that, because it was, there was, there were softball questions to the artist about their yeah. new f- project in order to right. sell that thing. Right. So, you know, it's very one sided of what the conversation yeah. was going to be about, but they're also oh, yeah. fascinating. I mean, you know, but, but they were doing those. I mean, you know, that's, I would put that in the same category as like the, um, the Billy and Phil for, I guess, was it for Glass Houses or Nylon Curtain? They did that interview. It's on the My Life Oh, box. Glass Houses where they're just in the studio, right? Yeah. Yeah. And just talking about like, this is why, mm-hmm. you know. So they, they would do stuff like that. Or or there's like the um, the intercords. Mm-hmm. You know, that was right. made for radio. For, you know, like a radio special about a new record. But, you know, they made those on like Dan Fogelberg yep. and everybody else you could think of at the time. And Billy, I think they did two of them on. And then there was one called like Behind the yep. Nylon Curtain and- so they were always making things yeah. like that. And again, you know, for every one of them, it's like there's a box of stuff somewhere where you go, well, give me the box of <laughs> yeah. stuff. Yeah. As the archivist, and you mentioned Raiders of the Lost Ark, which is what I started picturing as well. What does your workspace look like? Like, where do you go and label and organize? And- it's basically all remote. There's a wonderful company called mm-hmm. Iron Mountain that you guys might've heard of that has facilities yeah. everywhere. I think all over the country and all over the world. And they, they keep documents. They Sony's got a big one sort of in Western mm-hmm. Pennsylvania that they, that all of the, the Sony material mm-hmm. sits at. And they also do, I don't know, WWE and some stuff with the government oh, wow. literally. And, you know, it's a big, huge, like old salt mine mountain. And uh, you know, there's an iron mountain facility that has Billy's stuff in it that used to be, in various places and sort of all showed up in one place. And they've got an amazing team there that basically like, you know, will send me a PDF of a tape. I'm like, Oh, okay, let's look at this tape or these 50 Mm. tapes or whatever. And they'll send me PDFs. And then I'll say, okay, I think it's this one. Let's digitize that one. And then we'll say, okay, now we've digitized that. Let's up res it using like a Terranex machine that they have. Cause they have an amazing studio there as well to do archiving and, and preservation and, and stuff. So yeah. So then basically I just get a file. I look at it and, you know, we also have a digital archive that we're migrating mm-hmm. everything over to. Um, that's more like cloud-based right. that actually Jeff Shock had started. So, you know, there's a lot of photos and TIFFs, JPEGs and docs and PDFs and all kinds of stuff in there. And, you know, pictures that he, lots of pictures that he took, um, you know, cause he would do the shows for many, many years. He would also photograph the shows a lot of just kind of puzzle putting a puzzle back together kind of in the dark you're sort of feeling the edges and going i think this goes with this let me see if that's really the case but we've we've found some amazing stuff have you found that sometimes you know you'll 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 come across something you didn't know existed and it will send you on a rabbit hole that you just was never even on your radar oh absolutely i don't know if you guys are familiar with the show that was on uh, MTV UK called uh, Music Passport yeah. 87. And it's Billy in London. And it's like this bizarre show where like Liberty is going to like the the um, underground, what do you call them? Uh, yes. Crypts in London. And like Billy's hardly in it, um, except that he goes to this motorcycle yeah. museum. And there's a little interview with him where he's talking about um, looking forward to going to Russia uh, which is really interesting piece of that whole story. But there's some clips from his show at the time at uh, Wembley Arena. If I'm not mistaken, does that have like a pretty bizarre version of Big Shot, where he's kind of going a little, a little wild? Yeah, 
It does. It does. And you know, it's the it's the it's earlier in the bridge tour than Russia, obviously. So one thing that I compl- found completely by accident is a stack in a box of sixteen millimeter film that just says Wembley eighty seven on it. <laughs> I don't know how much film that is. I don't know how many minutes that would equate to, how many cameras they used, how many. Yeah. So I just go, let's save that for that looks really interesting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> let's put that to on the on the uh, holy yeah. crap shelf for the moment. <laughs> Again, it goes back to wherever you see something, there's always more stuff to 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 go back and, and figure out, you know, where that is or where it came from. So that's a good example of something, yeah. you know, where technology actually is in a it's kind of frustrating because, you know, you'll see stuff on YouTube all the time and you're like, wow, that's, that's awesome. What is that? Or like, what's that, you know, interview or performance or whatever. And, and, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to see it, but if you can't actually like put your hands on it, it's just sort of like right. out there. Yeah. I'm curious now, cause you said, you know, you had been stuck, you know, like we're locked in an airtight room with, with all of Van Morrison's tapes, things like that. Aside from the label, keeping their collateral, is there a point where an artist seems to be like, I guess I should start collecting this stuff? Or is this something different for every artist? Is there like so, sort of a point where somebody goes, yo, it's it's time to start putting this stuff in boxes and labeling it? It's different for every artist, you know, but, but something that's come up recently, this has nothing to do with Billy, but there's a lot of artists like Bruce have, has done this. Paul Simon has done this. Mm-hmm. Dylan has done this. They'll be approached by a university. Mellencamp just did this with Mm. Indiana where I went. And basically you assemble your archive, you, um, you know, sort of get it evaluated based on Mm. what's in it, uh, including things like handwritten lyrics, you know, it's like completely invaluable stuff, you know, but it's tapes, it's videos, it's pictures, it's, you know, everything. And, uh, and you go, okay, we think this is worth blah. And, you know, a university, like Monmouth College for Bruce or or whatever would go. Okay, we're gonna what we're gonna do is give you get you. It's some sort of like um, uh, tax credits or or some donation to a public space, and then that you know is is financially advantageous to the artist and their their sort of legacy of you know when they eventually aren't here right. aren't with us anymore. A lot of artists I think have been thinking in that vein of like look, we're all not going to be here someday. So it's like, is all my stuff in order? Is everything being taken care of? Has it been given to the right person? Is it, you know, because some some artists, they don't want their kids to uh, have to deal with it. Being a recording artist or being a songwriter or being a producer or somebody that gets like royalties from a project is a pain (laughs) in the butt. I mean, the amount of times that you have to like audit different companies and pay lawyers to go in and say, you know, I think you shorted us on half a million records in 1982. And, you know, it's like, it's, it's a real like pain in the butt to be sort of responsible for that. And, I'll, and you know, a lot of these big artists don't want to leave that burden yeah. to the next generation. Um, you know, much less like a box of videotapes that I have under my bed. Like, what do mm. I do with this? <laughs> Besides some yeah. want to just throw it out. Like, I don't want anyone right. to ever see this, <laughs> just burn it. It's kind of, we're in a time where I think artists are seeing a, a there's a benefit to getting the mm-hmm. stuff together in a way that, you know, can be donated to a museum or a university yeah. or a, you know, somewhere that, that is going to take yeah. good care yeah. of it. You know, like the, the, uh, the Bob Dylan center in uh, right. Tulsa, Oklahoma that they opened a few wow. years ago um, is uh, you know, this amazing interactive museum of like just Bob Dylan yeah. stuff. And that was, 
you know, he's always had a great team of people that um, look after his legacy sort of preemptively. It's it's time to put it somewhere where people can go enjoy it. But you would need to have it all together in order to do that. That might be a challenge with Billy because Billy's so so often not interested, it seems like, in revisiting his past as opposed to... I'm thinking of someone like Zappa, who I'll bet you probably hand-lettered all his myriad tapes, you know, before they before they got archived. You know, yeah, it's, like I said, it's different yeah. with every artist, you know, and, and, and some are very interested in wringing every cent out of, you know, archival concerts and yeah. videos and, and, and stuff like that. Um, you know, I think that the Zappa estate has done a really mm-hmm. good job yeah. of that of giving that fan base exactly what it is yeah. that they're looking for. Yeah, um, but Metallica Cab does a really good job as well. And, and it's a lot of artists who own their own recordings. You know, Zappa owned his own recordings. And then you have a guy, I think, in Metallica, a guy in, in Lars who is like, he's the, you know, James always called him the biggest Metallica fan there is. So he kept everything yeah, from every exactly. everything. They just employ people on their team to go basically through Lars's archives and 90% of it is there. I hope, I hope they call them the Lark. <laughs> <They should>, yeah. <laughs> no, but you know, other artists like, uh, let's say, you know, U2, yeah. for instance, they're gearing up to do a whole <laughs> bunch of stuff next year. They've done s- some archival stuff, but it's like, there's not nearly as much as out there as probably should be for a band that did like as epic oh, of yeah. tours, you know, as epic of uh, recording projects and, you know, do overs and do over until they got it exactly right. You know, it's a. Uh, I think. I think if you're a fan of someone, you're always going to want more. Yeah. It's up to the artist to go. Mm-hmm. That's plenty. Or you know, I just want you to listen to my records. Thank you very much. Or 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 here's you know here's everything. Go for it. you you yeah. you tell me what's good. Where do you feel Billy lies within that spectrum? D- towards the please just yeah. listen to my records. Yeah. That's his mindset. That's the era that you know, that he came from. That's the, you know, I worked really hard to make New York state of mind sound like this. This is the one Mm -hmm. I want you to have. I don't want you to have the bootleg from, you know, Passaic, New Jersey, 1976. It's like, listen to this one if you want. And I can understand Um, that. You know, it's not the Grateful Dead where it's, you know, every version is going to be somehow slightly different. But But I think that there is a difference between getting the archive in order, having it all cataloged, log digitized mm-hmm. etc and then making commercial products out of it you know i think you can do one without having Certainly. to do the other you know particularly for somebody like billy having the well done archive i think makes the when you decide to go into the commercial end of it you're able to make more informed choices be, because you have a little better better handle on what you have uh, like the grateful dead for instance who again own their own recordings you know they've had now two different guys that that's all they do. Like that's their entire job is just to listen to old concerts and decide a program of which ones are going to come out over time. And some of them are like a 17 CD box set yeah. of this run of shows from this venue yeah. on this year. And it's like, <laughs> okay, you know, but that's, that's what that, you know, that's what they yeah. want to do. And that's how they've managed to maintain the fan base that they have and the, the, the sort of rabid interest they have you know a lot of it does depend on the fan base as well and it's like that with live shows too you know we 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 get in discussions with folks about you know billy's live shows and set lists and it's like well you know he a billy joel audience is different than a pearl jam audience and a springsteen audience 
like those those audiences from the get go have been conditioned to go on a ride of you don't know what to expect. Like you know from mm. the from the get go in a live show where you know Billy has built such a legacy on hits where you know that's going to eat up eighty five percent of your set right there, and it's it's just how those shows have been built as the albums have gone on. And that's why you know when he says. I don't, I haven't needed to make new music. It's like you can do a three hour show almost. And literally you're counting the songs that he didn't play. You know, it's like, well, he didn't do this. He didn't do this. You know, so it's just, it's an embarrassment of, of riches of having, you know, composed so many songs that are just ingrained in the, in the conscious of, of music fans everywhere. How standardized is the role of the, the rock and roll archivist? Oh, zero. It usually starts out with, like in this case, somebody that's like the artist's friend or their nephew mm. or something like that, that goes, you know, we should start really, you know, scanning your photos. We should start to, you know, kind of go through some tapes, work with the label, that sort of thing. It's not done by like the Smithsonian, mm. you know, for lack of a better mm. comparison. And so, you know, it gets off to sort of a patchy start and then um, picks up steam mm. over time, you know, as, as, as you're going. Because to do it, you know, sort of the the proper way from the start would just be so ungodly mm. expensive, hundreds and hundreds of thousands of dollars to get videotapes, you know, transferred and audio tapes mixed, mm. transferred, mixed, you know, just to right. listen to and go like, oh, that's interesting. Let's do that again. It just becomes too burdensome mm. for, for the, in the case of the Dylan folks, you know, they started working on his archive in the, in the late eighties when okay. box sets came out. And so they were their first sort of steps through the archive were were very broad you know they had that biograph box set and then over time they were able to do commodity products commoditized products of some live shows or deep dives into periods where they could go in and say ah let's transfer everything from blood on the tracks or everything from you know the live 66 tour or whatever and so in pieces you end up with a properly mm-hmm. done thing mm-hmm. But you know, it's it, like I said, it's yeah. different for every artist. So it sounds like what you what you're doing is like a real, you know, to be cliche, left brain, right brain thing, where you have to be very analytical, catalog these things and find them. And on the other hand, you're sitting there. You're also saying to yourself, well, what's the story? What what you know? When when I zoom out, what what am I seeing happening? Is that common for 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 a lot of the archivists, or do you feel that's something that's more specific to someone maybe like Billy or or maybe Bob Dylan? Or someone where there's just more of a story in there. That's a pretty common thing. I think you have to have the the, the sort of foresight and and the knowledge of the person's career to go like, oh, uh, ding ding ding! I've just found something that's mm-hmm. really interesting. And every artist is going to have stuff that their fans mm-hmm. want to mm-hmm. see. And you know, even if it's um, black and white single camera from a rehearsal in 1988 or something like that of a band that's going to go out on tour and it's like they're working through songs for the very first time and it's you know even if it's like horrible to look at it's like well that's really interesting and there's a certain subset Mm -hmm. of that fan base that's like i really want to i've heard about this i really want to see that you know every artist needs to understand that like even no matter what you think you have stuff like that you know, and it might be something that's like, you're like, eh, no, eh, it's just a, you know, black and white videotape of the rehearsal that we did once and the tour never even happened. And it was the only time we ever played those songs. So, so yeah, so, you know, you have to kind of be mm-hmm. clued into it um, from mm-hmm. the get go, but it's certainly fun to 
piece things together or like Mike, Michael, you were saying, going down the yeah. that rabbit hole of like, well, what is this? And then how did this happen? And why, what is this thing in here? You know, you'll see 10 seconds of a live performance yeah. within a news piece or something. And you're like, well, well hold on. They didn't just get 10 <laughs> seconds of the live right, performance. Right. Come on. So yeah, it's, it's, it's really um, takes a lot of yeah. thought and, and kind of trial and error really. We do a series where we, We'll take a, a bootleg. It sometimes will be a notable one or some that's not well known. And we we try to kind of dig into the time frame of you know what was going on in the world of Billy. Uh, we did one a year or two ago. What was it? The Kieran Drygigs one in Japan in 1988. Yeah. Like the one show he did in Japan. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or the one show he did that whole year. It was the in-between lineups show. So Skyler mm-hmm. was on board. I think Kevin Dukes. No, Kevin wasn't there, but uh, Peter Hewlett was playing rhythm guitar. So it was a hodgepodge of a lineup. On its surface, you're like, okay, it's just a show. But when you're kind of digging into like, oh, this is a very interesting snapshot of a transition that only exists here. Like that's the kind of stuff we like to peel back. And and again, even if it's a, a poor quality thing, you're like, well, wait, this is important because... It's the only show that has right. this exact lineup of people right. playing these. And you hear songs. like even the transitions in the arrangements too are like, well, okay, well that's a holdover from the bridge tour. Okay, that's something that we're we're gonna hear again in Stormfront, or that's the some flourish that never never happened again after that. You know, they didn't use that synth sound on Miami anymore mm-hmm. or something like that. And one thing that has always fascinated us too, it, it's more prevalent seventies and into the early eighties, how very distinct the album eras were in look in sound, in obviously the touring, but, you know, when you take the Nylon Curtain and An Innocent Man are, le- you know, <laughs> those cycles are less than a year apart, but they feel like there's a mountain in between them because they feel so different and so much has happened just within that 11 months. Oh, yeah. No, and it's and it's it's insane the, the, the pace at which artists were expected oh to work then, you know, and it's everybody from, you know, Van Halen and Journey and you know Billy and everybody that it's like to come out with a record that was like gun to your head this has to be your best record otherwise we're not going to put out a crappy record as your next right. thing and to go why well, but I was just been on the road for 11 months and now you're going to give me a month and a half and I've got to be back in the studio again I mean I think that the I think Nylon Curtain was released in um November of 82 and I think the first sessions that yield Innocent Man material are like February or March yeah. of 83. Yeah. And you can tell that by the just sort of the tape boxes mm-hmm. of, you know, it's like, hey, I had this idea. Let's just go. Just a couple and, months. You know. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's like literally they put one to bed. They start working on the yeah. next one. And, you know, in between going on these massive world tours of like nothing smaller than a hockey yeah. arena. And it's just that, you know, the pace and the quality that, you know, not just Billy, everybody needed to keep yeah. up at that time. But that was right. what the business was. Yeah. You wonder why they all got burned out. <laughs> yeah, it's yeah, why everybody had that treading water you album know? or something in the middle of everything. Yeah. You know, every time we talk about Nylon Curtain, I always think of, um, you know, the album uh, Berlin by Lou Reed, like that sort of sprawling. Yeah. When sure. you read the uh, the liner notes on one of the reissues, they were talking about like what just what an arduous process it was like, you know. Ansley Dunsbar, the drummer, was like, I think we left like a little bit of ourselves, you know, in the studio just trying to get that thing out. So it's so amazing to think of like, you know, yeah, you're doing like the nylon curtain, you know, coming off a divorce, a motorcycle accident and your heaviest album. And then somehow you flip your own script 
and just do an innocent man a few months later, or at least start thinking in that vein is is yeah. really astounding. And to think that you needed to do it in order to make somebody else a <laughs> right. lot of money. It's not just like, this is what I yeah. was feeling. You know, it's like, oh, you have to package it in the most catchy, popular, you know, versions of songwriting that has right. ever existed. <laughs> you know, if you think about, you know, yeah, like you yeah. said, keeping the faith or, you know, mm-hmm. even for the longest time or whatever, it's like yeah. awesome <laughs> songs. <laughs> and it's like, I just decided to like go in this direction and make songs that yeah. sounded like this. And it's like, and then I did it better yeah. than anybody else. Right. Well, yeah. yeah, there you go. You know, Liberty once t- told me, he said that he said, because of everything surrounded the nylon curtain, which we all loved. An Innocent Man was exactly what we needed because it was fast, it was light and fun. It just was a breath of fresh air to kind of reset it, you know, just coming off of everything they did with Nylon. And even like the, you know, it's it's more a bit more personal. Nylon's got more yeah. like narrative songs on it too. So it was really just that sort of this is how I'm feeling right now. And it and it was fun. It's mm-hmm. a fun record to hear. And that was my first Billy record. Like that came out when I was, you know, second grade or yeah. third grade or something like that. And, uh, you know, would hear it all the time in my parents' car or you couldn't escape it on the radio, that sort of thing. So no matter what, whatever your first album is by whatever artist it is, is that, that's always going to be your yeah. favorite of that artist. And so, you know, I hear that and it's like it brings back my own memories of that period. But it's supposed to be sparking nostalgia, you know, in you about when you were a kid. So it's it's doing its job 45 <laughs> years after. Right. That. I know. It's wild. Yeah, so, and- yeah. <laughs> You look at everything else was that was charting in 83 and 84. The odds of a, a record that was so deeply rooted in pop and R&B of the 50s and 60s, like hitting so well then. I mean, how unlikely was that? But that that's goes yeah. to the compositions and how huge of a celebrity he was. But, you know, if if he were to put out a record that was terrible, it all would yeah. have fallen apart. I know. And and it's it to, to, to think that that. Yeah, it's like. That record came out at the same time as Thriller and, and you know, Synchronicity and, you know, I'm probably off by six months yeah, either way. It's all but, right in there. You know, it's it, yeah. to think that that fit in yeah. right there, MTV, radio, everything, you know, Purple Rain, all of that stuff was out right at that same time is just, I mean, it's, it, it, again, it's fascinating. And now we're doing the thing that we were talking about earlier where we're like deep diving into 1983 and like, what was that period? What was he doing? What was he thinking? What was he, yeah. you know, how was he yeah. writing? You know, so, you know, what does the first take of Uptown Girl sound like? And what is the, you know, and don't we all want to know what, you know, so it sort of gets you into that like, holy crap mindset of, you know, they they did that show, the, uh, the American Professionals mm-hmm. then, the Phil Ramone documentary where there actually is some behind the scenes of him in the studio for innocent man. And it's like, yeah, you can tell like they're just having fun. It's it's like they're doing stuff that, you know, is meaningful to them, you know, sort of cups. They're running through covers and just, just having a fun time. And you're like, well, there you go. That's what a band is supposed to do. The uh, journey catalog, Mm -hmm. the band journey. They had, they did a famous uh, sort of home video thing from when the Raised on Radio yeah. album came out. Mm-hmm. No, and to think like, you know, in November 9th of this year, you know, the song Piano Man will be, and the album will be yeah. 50 years old. The song Piano Man didn't yeah. exist once. You kind of can't believe it when you think of it like that. But it's like, that song was at one point something that no one had ever heard before. You know, now it's like the greatest wallpaper in your life, but it's like, it's yeah. just everywhere. Yeah. And you would think that it just always mm-hmm. existed, like you know, the Bible <laughs> or something. And it's like that got written, it got recorded, 
and then it got released and nobody cared. <laughs> and then it got released again yep. and nobody cared. And it got released again. You know, you can't take yeah. it for granted as, as a fan and as a an archivist or, you know, I, I think as an artist, although I, I can't speak for them, but you can't take for granted that people still want to hear that song every single night yeah. all the time. And they want to sing it in karaoke and they want to listen to it in their car and they want to show it to their kids and they want to play it at their family reunion. And it just becomes a part of your life. And someone made that once. I think part of what's been great about Billy as a recording artist is that he's always had the, well, I'm competent. You know, he's, he's never been, you know, <laughs> he's always knocked himself down just enough of a peg. I, I almost feel like that's been part of the secret sauce of his creativity. Because he's still just been like, yeah. I'm just a guy from New York in a band. Even when he was celebrity Billy Joel, when it came down to making records, he was just still the guy and his friends making albums. That's, I think, part of why people are so attracted to like to yeah. his thing as an artist is like, oh, he's one of us. Like that, that could have yeah. been me up there, you know. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you don't have the knack for melody, but I know what you you're know. talking about. Like, yeah. <laughs> Or like, I forget who said it, but you know, I, everybody could probably write one yeah. really good song, maybe if they mm-hmm. really had to. But to do it over and over and over again for you know twenty five years, and it's like every song is just I know you know a, a, a compositional yeah. achievement is you know not something that any artist yeah. really that that I can think of has done in the last fifty years. No, well, and even some of the songs that me many would consider his worst or forgettable, which I, I don't, but it's like you stack some of those lesser known songs that have kind of been forgotten against some other artists best. Those even hold up. I saw him in Portland five years ago. It was around the run of shows. He brought out stop in Nevada for like five nights. Yeah. Which was such a treat, but I'm like, what a great song that nobody knows on the grand scheme of things. And the fact that his albums were so dense, with material like that, it's pretty rich. Back to the digital thing. It's like, you know, the fact that a song like Vienna could, you know, in 2023 be his, I think it's his third most streamed song. Yeah. You know, of his entire catalog. And, you know, it's because people have sort of picked it up and heard it in a movie or heard it in a, you know, their friend play it or in a TikTok or whatever, you know, and it's like, there's ways for people to come to this stuff that, no one could have possibly yeah. dreamed of yeah. when it got made. And to, to think that something like stop in Nevada, you know, right. haha, but what, what if that did blow up on something and some, you know, cause to that generation of music people, everything right. is brand new. They don't know Led Zeppelin from, you know, Louis Armstrong. It's like, everything sounds like a cool new yeah. thing to them if it's presented yeah. the right way. So, and that's, you know, a big challenge for artists is how do, how do I fit into that? And most of them right. don't care, you know, it's <laughs> for other about, people yeah. to do. A lot of those artists, do they need to make new, does, do the Rolling Stones need to make a new album? Yeah. Probably not. You know, do, are they gonna, <laughs> of course they're going to, that's, they're the Rolling Stones, yeah. but do, you know, but I think when Billy's like, I don't need to make a new record anymore. It's like, well, that's, yeah. he doesn't, his songs will always be found. will always yeah. find an audience yeah. because yeah. they're great. You know, they're not, it's not Zappa who's amazing, but very particular, you know, and it's not, you know, Bruce who's like sings for everybody, but it's like, you don't imagine yourself being Bruce, but you kind of imagine yourself being this everyday guy. That's like, (laughs) I don't, you know, 
which is part yeah. of Billy's genius is that, you know, you, you could imagine yourself yeah. doing that. And it's, it's just, it's just a great, his, his story is so amazing. And the fact that he hasn't had to do a new record, a new record, a new record. And it's just like, people have found yeah. his amazing material. It's not like he's out doing interviews and, nope. you know, media blitzes and, yeah. you know, remixes with uh, Britney Spears and stuff like that. It's like, he just plays concerts. He does what he does. Even going back to songs in the attic, yeah. he's been flipping the script so subtly for, for how many years, you know, just, uh, you know, no, I'm, I'm not going to make a regular live record. I'm going to make some weird studio hybrid. No, I'm just going to make like a fifties throwback. Exactly. No, I'm going to stop making records. No, I'm just going to play the garden every month. Like <laughs> exactly. Yeah. I have a drum student. She's 14 years old and I took her out to an open mic uh, last night, actually for her first time, like playing in front of people. And I have this thing where I'll throw the kids in the deep end. Cause I know like what songs they play that are like slow enough. They could do them. And it's just funny that you mentioned the, the two songs that she did for, you know, were, were piano man and, and Vienna. And she was like getting nervous looking through oh, nice. the stack. Like what's she going to do? And she goes, oh, no Vienna. I know Vienna. Like, <laughs> you know, that was the one she, she gravitated right towards and, and played all the way through. <laughs> And that's got some yeah, drum oh, breaks yeah. on it where you can't, uh, you're not playing. So you got to really uh, keep, keep yeah, the time yeah. happening. Yeah. yeah. She didn't do too many of those, but she was, that was the one she was like, and then, you know, just putting this together. I never realized that it's like one of her favorite songs because her parents were like, oh, you're going to get to do it finally. Like how many times she's listened to it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Apparently it's huge with like teenage right, girls, yeah. like the whole idea of like, slow down you crazy child like you're you're fine mm. don't worry about it. like that's really yeah. resonating with um particularly girl you know sort of gen z every generation comes up they're latching onto something different as much as i'd like to see what billy joel writing pop music in 2023 sounds like the fact that he stopped when it did it didn't dilute the catalog so to speak he wasn't just making yeah. records to yep. fulfill a contractor because he felt he had to he's like you know what i'm proud of what i did this is it and mm -hmm. it kind of makes the body of work stronger in a way. It's like the Beatles, you know, like if the Beatles had gotten back together in 1978. Yeah. Would it have been interesting then? Like, it would well, have been this like, yeah. It probably would well, have been great. But it's like if right. it hadn't or, or you know, yeah. whatever, it's, you know, if somebody was experimenting with some new, you know, early hip hop music yeah. or something, it's like, you never know. So it's like, it's best yeah, right. that it's just this. Yeah, it's it could have fine. been the Star Wars <laughs> prequels, you know, like you just don't know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Good point. Yeah. Even River of Dreams yeah. is now going to be, what, 30? Yeah. Yeah, yeah 93, yeah. See, that, that that's a good example of, I know there's a yeah. lot of material, like all the recording sessions, you know, in the, in the boathouse were filmed and recorded and all of that stuff. But like, I, I have no idea when I would get to that yeah. piece of the of the yeah. deep dive, you know. Yeah. But uh, but I'm sure that there's because I know that they just had tape running constantly mm -hmm. for a while, and they did a bunch of stuff, and then they did the Danny Korchmar stuff, and it was you know different versions of of, of lineups yep. and stuff like that. So yeah. it'd be very exciting. Yeah, or even you know, there's there's demo reels of you know he did the song uh, Everybody Has oh, a yeah. Dream. I don't know three times or something before stranger on different um sessions and stuff and so you know you see that and you go oh, uh, yeah let me listen to that what does that sound and, and why was it left off why didn't you and then if you left it off the first time why did you bring it back the second right. time and you know so it's sort of this unraveling of a mystery
John, thank you for taking the time. I know we originally reached out to you about Great American Music Hall, but you were incredibly receptive to expanding the conversation and talking more generally about your role and how you made the move over from Sony to Billy. And uh, it, it was really fascinating hearing your approach and you know hearing your passion for what you're doing. So thank you for sharing with it and shining some light on really how hard you and the rest of Billy's team are working into putting together a true archive of Billy Joel. You know, for all the work we put into this podcast, it's it's these kind of conversations a lot of times that, that really make it worth it for me. Not only to get to speak to these people, but be able to be the platform that tells their stories is, you know, really cool. It's a treasure to explore it because, you know, a lot of people don't realize the different nuts and bolts that go into a career like Billy's. Obviously, there's the man himself and there's the songs and the albums, but the family tree, so to speak, of this man's career is far reaching. So the fact that over these last three years, we've been able to have so many people on who have had some involvement in the journey of Billy's career, tell their story and touch on how their work and their passion has helped shape not only the current story, but the legacy as we know it. And that's a big part of what John's doing here. Once again, now it's time to hear from you all. What did you think of this episode? What did you think of John's story? Oh, do you have any of the items that, that he's looking for? By all means, hit us up and we will we will connect you, however that would work. Because there's a lot of cool stuff out there as we've spoken to uh, some other people in the Billy Joel community. You know, there's a lot of lost little relics out there that people tend to turn up. And if you think you got one, let us know. Uh, glasshousespodcast at gmail.com or we're on the socials under Glasshouses of Billy Joel Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And uh, hey, if you listen to us on Apple Podcast, go ahead and give us that five-star review and positive rating. Every five-star review and positive rating is a signal to the almighty algorithm that we are a podcast of merit, and so it will introduce us to more potential listeners, making it a free and easy way to help support the podcast. And last year, we launched a Discord server, which has been growing exponentially over recent months. We've got a great group of listeners and other Billy fans who have joined in to uh, have the conversations in between episodes and talk about the topics that we get to talk about every couple weeks. And it's, it's a lot of fun and a great community building online. If you look in our show notes below, you'll see a link to the Discord server. And also within there, every month we're doing a monthly watch party where we pick a notable Billy Joel live concert series of music videos, documentary. So far, we've done Live from Long Island. We've done 2000 Years of Millennium Concert. We did the video album, Volume 2. We did A Matter of Trust, the original 1991 documentary. And we're starting to kind of piece together each one we're going to do the next couple months. So it's a lot of fun. And it's just a great way to uh, actually have some conversation with everybody who listens to the podcast. So check it out. And we hope to see you on there before our next episode maybe we'll see you in the discord server and if we don't we'll see you here next time all right we'll see you soon everyone thanks
What would you do to achieve the American dream? The big house, the happy family, the money. 911, what's your emergency? Would you put in the hours? Would you take a big swing? What's the problem? What's the problem? Would you lie? Would you cheat? Would I shop? Would I shop? Would you kill? Yes. From Airship, the studio behind American Scandal, comes a new true crime history podcast. I'm Jeremy Schwartz, and I'll be taking you inside the minds of some of our most notorious felons and outlaws, exploring the dark side of the American dream. In my new show, American Criminal, you'll meet the picture-perfect brothers who killed their parents, the thief who stole babies, the crypto king who siphoned off billions and plenty more. From assassins and gangsters to killers and con artists, whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the full story until now. Don't miss the debut season of American Criminal, The Menendez Brothers, beginning February 29th. Listen wherever you get your podcasts, or to get early ad-free access to the entire season first, plus hundreds of other ad-free history podcast episodes, subscribe at intohistory.com.